Well, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you for the warm welcome. And I uh, know this is maybe an appetizer for the retreat if you're going to be going on that uh, in January. Uh, so uh, I, I hope you'll sign up and be with us uh, in Santa Fe. My wife, Kim, and I are looking forward to that. It's my first time to be with you here in worship, though I've known you for a long, long time. In fact, I think if they could do one of those spiritual 23andMe tests, we would find that there are a lot of DNA markers that we share in common. Uh, I do feel very much at home with you, so thank you so much. Now, it must be an occupational hazard. Every time there's like some big world crisis, uh, 9-11, took place, you know, and, and then we had COVID-19, and then more recently, Hamas's brutal attack uh, on Israel, and Israel's subsequent uh, bloody retaliation in Gaza, someone will ask me if I think we are living in the end times, right? It's usually not just one someone. All the signs are there, they say. It just feels like the end of the world. You're the preacher, George. What do you think? To be honest, I don't know that they really want to know what I think as much as have their feelings confirmed. Right? Feelings of fear that punishment is coming upon this world and feelings of hope that they will escape it because of their faith. On this second Sunday of Advent, it is both Peace Sunday and Bethlehem Sunday. We feel both things, don't we? Hopes and fears. And it reminds us of that lovely line in Phillips Brooks's Christmas Carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, that goes, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee. Tonight, And I bet that many of you in this room could bear witness in your own soul right now to both of those things. Hopes and fears that you are harboring. Maybe they are personal. Maybe they are global. Maybe they are congregational. But the question is, what's going to win out? The hopes or the fears? The writer of 2 Peter felt them both in his day, which was probably around the turn of the first century and under persecution from the Roman Empire. And in times before then and since then, the world has indeed felt dark and worrisome. A hundred years ago, the Irish poet William Butler Yeats penned a poem titled The Second Coming. He borrowed and twisted Christian themes, and scholars have analyzed this to death and haven't got much consensus, but the first part of it is not hard to figure. Listen. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. 
mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Can't you just feel things falling apart in that language? Yeats expresses the fear that what we call civilization is threatened on every side. The falcon is on its own in the skies, untethered from its disciplining master. The rules of society aren't holding us together anymore. Morality is failing. Religious ceremonies of innocence like baptism and confirmation have lost their force in the face of a violence that tears us apart. And sometimes that violence is literal and sometimes it's relational. We have wars in Ukraine and Gaza. But we also have a national election 11 months away. And whether you lean right or left hardly matters in the face of democracy now being on the ballot. If you can even get a ballot. Trust in leaders is hard to find everywhere. We used to think our country was the exception. We used to think our churches were the exception. No longer. Yates was writing during the Spanish flu epidemic of 1919. Ireland's bloody conflict with England was fresh in his nostrils and the West was still reeling from the great war in Europe that took so many lives and Yeats believed that Christianity had failed, that the values of justice and mercy could no longer stem the tide of bad actors who were gaining control over our future. Sound familiar? Many today feel the same. And in fairness, I have heard Jeremiads like this from both the right and the left. The right bemoans that the stable world they knew, where America was Christian and noble and, well, right, is being torn apart by people who don't have the same values that made our country great. They think every religion gets a pass, except Christianity. They believe public schools have become secular and undermine their faith by teaching tolerance toward gay and transgender youth. People seeking equality and justice in the streets and in Congress are really trying to impose their morality upon everyone else in the name of freedom. So they look for a strong leader to stand up for them and rescue the world as they have known it before it's too late. The left cry for freedom and a new order after centuries in which People who have been oppressed by those who have held the reins of power and privilege from generation to generation won't seem to let go. They want to smash systems that have kept women and people of color and immigrants and LGBTQ persons from full participation in our society. They often find fault with Christianity for propping up these systems and not proclaiming a liberating gospel 
of justice and equality for all. And they see that those who have profited by the ways of this organizing society are the biggest threat to the common good. They aren't looking for a strong man to take us back. They're looking for a revolution that would move us forward to make the promises of democracy theirs at last. In other words, people across the cultural and political spectrum all feel the hopes and fears both at times. So where is God in all of this and what is God calling us to do? The writer of 2 Peter uses language similar to Yeats in saying that things are falling apart and that the world as we know it will be judged. Like the prophets of the Hebrew Bible and the Hellenistic Stoics of his own time, he talks in cosmic terms about the dissolution of the heavens and the earth. They're just going to melt down. And everything is going to be destroyed to give way because this, this world as we know it is going to come to an end. And, and, and I don't know if you listened when it was read, but didn't it sound kind of science fiction-y to you? You know? Apocalyptic language like that was commonly used to speak about coming moral judgment in which the righteous would endure and inherit a new heaven and a new earth. This was their end-of-the-world movie kind of things, you know, uh, their way of talking about it. Now, some, even today, take all that literally. And what with climate change these days, I'm not sure we shouldn't think that we might burn up one of these days. But there must be some spiritual meaning inside that kind of figurative language. And I think it's this. God is coming to fulfill God's promises of an enduring shalom for all the world. A place where peace and justice finally reign. Peace and justice, but justice first, then peace. Always justice first. The Reverend William Barber is an African-American minister who leads what's known as the Poor People's Campaign. This is uh, an effort to finish what Martin Luther King was trying to get to toward the end of his uh, life. He believes that God is at work to bring a moral revolution to the world, but the means by which that will come, he says, is a knife that cuts Figuratively, of course. There has to be division for healing, he says. Citing Jesus, when Jesus talked about how he didn't come to bring peace but a sword, you know. And what he meant by that is that his message would set father against son and mother against daughter and bride against mother-in-law and all of that. It sounds like, actually, our Thanksgiving tables, don't you know? How'd yours go this year? Peace will not come by patting one another on the back and being nice in the face of evil. It won't come from being less passionate about important things and all of us just agreeing to become moderates 
There's no part of Scripture, Barber says, that ever speaks to a peace that is the absence of justice. Even in the Hebrew language, shalom is peace. But shalom is not just the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. And Jesus never discussed some way of people being okay spiritually, but broken physically. So 2 Peter counsels us to holy living and patient waiting upon the Lord's coming. And that does not mean that we retreat and wait for Jesus to show up and deliver us at the second coming. It means we actively wait by being living witnesses to the new creation that God is bringing. Holy living requires patience and self-discipline in these times. Some of us become impatient and undisciplined and with tragic results. One of the saddest stories I heard during COVID was a Michigan couple in their 70s who died one minute apart in the same hospital room. She had been a nurse and had made sure that as a couple, they observed all the COVID protocols to the T. They isolated when they needed to. They always wore the right masks. They did everything to protect themselves until they didn't. They just got tired of it. And together they finally decided when it seemed like things were getting better to go out to a restaurant to dinner to celebrate. Both of them that night caught COVID. And they died side by side in the very hospital that she served. Their children buried them side by side prematurely. The lesson is not just about COVID precautions. It's about how Christians have to hold on to our faith and not give up in the face of a world that is falling apart. We have to stay vigilant and disciplined. Holiness and patience combine for fear to be overcome by hope. Yeats looked at the world a century ago and said, surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. But his hope was in some rough beast. It's our come round at last who slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. He used the imagery of our Savior being born in Bethlehem, but in this second coming, this different creature altogether would emerge to deliver us on terms that Jesus never preached or promised. The phrase, though, slouching toward Bethlehem, I love that phrase, is apt nonetheless because it suggests a slowness but a deliberate plodding ahead 
more than a swift and violent coming. And 2 Peter says something like that too. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. We lit the Bethlehem candle of peace today because we believe the Prince of Peace was born in Bethlehem and the promise of peace still radiates from that little town. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I was in Bethlehem at the beginning of October. I was there to attend a conference of Palestinians. 200 scholars, pastors, came from 25 countries to talk about the occupation that has been going on for 56 years in Palestine by Israeli forces. Little did I know that two days later, I would be in a Jerusalem hotel room waiting for my group to arrive from Dallas when we would begin a nine-day peacemaking tour. And Hamas would strike with such brutal inhumanity that the world would lose its collective breath. Hamas got tired of waiting. And they opted for the savagery of historic depths. So Christians in the Holy Land now have canceled Christmas this year. Did you know? They will observe it religiously and in their churches and homes, but they will not celebrate it publicly. There'll be no displays. I mean, Bethlehem we're talking about here. Manger Square, the Church of the Nativity. But out of deference and solidarity with those who are dying in Gaza, they are remembering more the massacre of innocents that took place around Jesus' time. My friend, Pastor Mitri Rahab, is a Palestinian Christian and theologian who likes to tell people that, he was, uh, that Jesus was born across the street from where he lived. And it's actually true. 26 years ago, though, Dr. Rahab started the first and only university of arts and culture in all of Palestine. He knew that the occupation would not last forever, and he also knew that what came afterward would depend upon what they were doing beforehand to train the next generation to have an imagination for a different kind of society. One that the arts uh, could help envision. One that wasn't just about guns. Wasn't just about power and politics. A new kind of community. And so Dar al-Kalama University brings together Palestinian Muslim and Christian young people. Teaching them creative ways to reimagine the world. To reject systems of domination and exploitation which as Christians we believe God is bringing judgment upon and will dissolve at long last. 
What will endure are people who know how to live together in peace, with respect. Hope is what we do, Mitri says over and over. It's slow work, though, I tell you, this slouching toward Bethlehem. And yet, it's where and how hope overcomes fear. Always. Whether in Bethlehem today or in Lubbock, Texas in this very hour. Amen.